Hi, welcome to Carbon Design's MindShift podcast. I'm Scott Gellum and I'll be your host today. We'll explore new ways of thinking, new technologies, and new insights to help drive business performance. So let's get started. We're talking with Stephanie Anderson. And Stephanie, I went back through your LinkedIn bio and just to see when we first met. It was 2004. Wow. Uh, back when you were North, head of North American marketing at Avaya. So it's been 15 years. And I'm really excited to, to speak with you today because you've been in sales, you've been in service, you've been in marketing. And now you're the you know, chairman of the board of an organization. So I love your vast experience. And what I wanted to speak to you with uh, our, this morning, the topic was around surviving and, and sales cultures and B2B marketing, which we spend a lot of our time in. It's difficult sometimes to be a marketer. And, uh, you know, I've walked into organizations, you've been inside of organizations where it can be very intimidating to be in marketing. So uh, kind of welcome this morning. And I'd really like to get your thoughts right out of the gate on how do you survive and thrive inside an organization that's very much a sales culture or very much a product culture? Yes. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me on your podcast. And uh, I can't believe it's been since 2004. (laughs) Wow. Time flies when you're having fun. You know, I think there's two two ways to think about a sales culture. You know, the positive is sales equals growth. And so it's exciting to be part of a growth organization. It means, you know, whatever the goal might be, you know, double our growth, whatever it is in the next few years, that's fun. So a sales culture is very positive in that way. The negative for a strategist or marketer, you know, who's trying to help and support that is or drive it more or less is you know actually the fact that it's a today you know culture too so there's a lot of sacrifice of tomorrow for today right Right. positive it's growth negative it's about today and so you have to balance that and it's a it can be very challenging and as you mentioned i'm super lucky that my foundation my first you know 10 12 years of my career was all sales or sales oriented or partnerships or you know, channel partners or system integrators or working, you know, working with big Fortune 500 companies. And so that gave me cred, you know, or has always given me the credibility to make sort of an observation to, to befriend, the, you know, my peer um, and work with them more closely, I think. Yeah. So do you think, and that's always, a, it's a really good point and something I've always found to be very helpful. Do you think having a sales background as a marketer gives you an advantage? I, I definitely do. And I will tell you a funny story. As you know, I'm a member of the CMO club. And I think when we first started our first meeting, it's now an 800 person worldwide organization. When we first started, we had an event that maybe had 50 people in the room. And I said, I stood up, we were doing introductions. And I said, you know, I have mostly a sales background. You know, how many other marketers have a sales background? Can you raise your hand? And like five, five people, I think, five, <laughs> not 45, five, raised their hand. And I said, I don't get it. How can you have never been a bag carrying salesperson and get what needs to happen and, and get the, um, the emotional aspect of selling? Yeah. You know, how can that be? So I thought that was very interesting. So I think, yes, I would say, and actually I would say to anyone that starting out your career in sales is never a bad thing because, you know, newsflash to everyone, you are always selling. You are selling in the boardroom. You are selling, you know, in the lunchroom. You are, you know, you're always selling your 
thoughts, your ideas, your team. You know, there's a lot of that that goes on anyway. So yeah, start there. <laughs> I used to have a. I used to work for a company, and the CFO had a mug that says "Everybody sells." So even that's your right. finance people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. And you know, that's an okay thing, right? I mean. I think people sometimes, uh, and young people particularly, sometimes categorize sales as a negative thing. Yeah. But they weren't around when Zig Ziglar was talking about how, you know, being a salesperson is you you own your day. Yeah. You're the CEO of your destiny, you know. Yeah. So yeah. that's the difference. You know, I think you need to have that experience or understand it really well to, to really be a CMO. Maybe yeah. not but a CMO. I totally agree. One of the things that always impressed me, and especially when you were the CMO of Time Warrior Cable in the business class, is the way that you are able to align your marketing teams to the rest of the organization, whether it be the sales organization or the product organization. Talk us a little bit about your philosophy about how you take a marketing team and get it aligned inside of the organization so that you're supporting your, your stakeholders. Yeah, I mean, I would say in that particular case, I was super fortunate to walk into um, a situation where we were in the last year of a five-year strategy to become one Time Warner Cable. And as you know, the cable industry is made up of a lot of different franchises. And we had been 31 franchises down to, I guess, 12, down to six, down to two, you know, east and west kind of thing. And we were becoming one. And so that was the point when the organization really needed an overhaul. And I was, I raised my hand and, you know, by the way, raise your hand, do something that you're a little uncomfortable with because it always pays off. Uh, but I raised my hand and said, I'll start. And so I took, I don't know how, I think we have 250 marketers, not including some non-US folks, but I took that organization, clean slate, and then kind of flipped it on its side. And instead of having it be based on, you know, tactics or you know, I'm doing digital or I'm doing mass TV and advertising or I'm doing print or I'm do- instead of it being based on tactics, I flipped it around and said, let's do it from the outside in and let's organize ourselves based on the customers we serve. That way, when you, Scott, wake up in the morning and you're on the small business team, that's all you think about is what those customers that are under 50 employees are worried about today. And you can really get into that. You can know that as well or better than your sales counterparts. And you can provide value by doing that. And so we revamped the whole organization and, you know, it turned out to be very successful. We had double digit growth for four years. So I think a lot of it had to do with having that outside in perspective and putting the customer first. We also, in that organization, owned customer experience. And that makes a big difference because you really need to really get down into the details of what your clients need. Yeah. So that helped a lot. Was that the way that the sales organization went to market as well? It was, for the most part. For the most part. We, there was, it was a little bit matrix, as all good sales organizations are, right? You've got your specialists of industries, you know, coupled with the size of the clients, coupled with the region you're serving. So, you know, because we didn't want people flying around all over the place necessarily. Uh, but, yeah, it, definitely they appreciated that alignment because they knew exactly who to go to to support, you know, the small business team or the mid-market enterprise team and so on. Yeah. And you went to market through partners as well. And, and that seems to be some somewhat of a, a challenge for marketers is how do you enable your business partners? What, what are your thoughts around the best practices or best ways to yeah. do that? Yeah, it's, that's a that's a tough one because for most 
marketers, I think, because they view in general, I think people tend to view your the partner as a customer. And sometimes that is the case, but most of the time it's not. And you really have to step back and say, you know, this is a partnership. We should both be benefiting from this. And if we're not both benefiting, something's wrong. So I think, you know, I we revamped um, our partner program quite a bit. We had a, an extensive partner program and we, you know, evaluated our partners, rated them. They were premium level type par- partners who got different things than the lower level partners. So they were all, you know, I think that's really important. And so that your partner knows that, you know, you both need to win. You, you know, you both need to be winning. Then the other thing is too, being being supportive of those partners and not treating them, you know, there was always this battle between, you know, direct versus indirect. Right. Yep. And <laughs> personally, to me, it's a sale, you know, so a sale is a sale. And we would get, you know, marketing tends to get caught in the middle of that quite a bit, you know, well, why are you having, you're having a partner event, but you're not having, you know, an event for us, you know, and I'm, saying, well, they're bringing the clients to this event. So we're supporting them, right? So there's a there's a delicate line there that you have to balance between supporting your direct sales force, I guess I would call it, and then your indirect partners. But I think every everyone can win. And ultimately, you need to talk about what's the most, the best way for the company to win. Because yeah. the best way for the company to win is not a direct sale. Yeah. Indirect sale. Yeah. Or in the case of you know, some of the technology I've been on, the company that you're aligned with that has maybe the better relationship with the client, or they have the technology that sort of shows up more. So, you know, they're the end unit, you know, on a, an internet that no one sees, right? Yeah. (laughs) So that's kind of the, you know, I think that you have to be open to selling differently. Yeah. Yeah. And that brings up another great topic, which is that divide between sales and marketing or sales versus partners. I mean, what were some of the ways that you were able to bring the divide down? And I can't, you can't completely separate it. There is sometimes just competing objectives on the organizations, but a lot of times uh, those things can be brought into alignment. But what are some of your some of your tips of getting alignment with the sales organization and making sure that you're communicating effectively to them on what your objectives were and, and getting them to understand it. Yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, sign up for revenue. And again, if you're in a head, head of marketing role, everyone probably has had the battle between marketing qualified leads, sales qualified leads, whatever that's going to net and yep. you do all the math, right. To, to figure that out. But if the goal is, you know, a billion dollars, sign up for whatever percent you believe you can truly prove through marketing that you have, you know, had an assist or you were directly related to. I mean, most of us would contend that marketing has something to do with everything. (laughs) (laughs) We touch everything. Marketing is everything. But I think, you know, the number one thing to do is with your peer, sign up for, I'm going to provide... 25% 25% of the revenue. I'm, I'm going to you know, be accountable for 25% of that revenue. I'm going to show you exactly. It may be more, but I am signing up for that. And um, and then, you know, give the sales force the tools and support that they need, you know, to go do that. Um, we had some scenarios where, you know, because we had call center, you know, so we had an inbound sales organization as well. And many, quite frankly, most of my roles have had huge call centers uh, that are either taking orders or caring for customers for service, whatever it might be. 
And that is a great place to show your work. It's an amazing place to show your work. Yeah. <laughs> if you have that, if you can't do it with everyone, just do it with that. Or if you have Salesforce, you know, that your salespeople are using, tie into that. I mean, I had access to, uh, in every job I have insisted on having, you know, like admin, admin level access to Salesforce, even though I personally probably stopped in to see things, you know, once a month. I just wanted to make sure that everyone knew that I cared that much, right? I mean, I care enough to go in and look at a client on a screen um, and try to make a difference. Yeah. So how did you how did you split that mix of revenue that you're signing up for between new acquisition and growing existing accounts? Well, growing existing accounts was sort of a foreign concept in the last couple of big roles I've had. <laughs> so that that was an easy win, I have to say. And that was all about, I mean, obviously you gotta do the heavy lifting with the data and the clients and understand who's got what. Yeah. Step one, who has our stuff and what are they doing with it and whatever else, whatever the product or service might be. Once you understand that, you know, then having that very targeted message, you know, really will help tremendously. And so we had 200% growth in that, in that category. But in terms of splitting up the revenue to your question, I think the original plan was that that 25% was net new. Okay. Right. And then as you go on in your year, maybe you're performing better with your aftermarket, you know, which I use that term aftermarket sales, maybe you're performing better with your aftermarket sales. So it kind of starts to supplement it more. Yeah. Truthfully, it's more, more margin rich. So the revenue trade-off or the, you know, maybe you're getting your revenue from somewhere else, but you're getting more margin. So you can have that conversation and that's not probably not the way with every company, but it's gotta be close because as we know, it costs more to get a new customer than to sell to existing. Right. So, so uh, that math probably works for most people to look at it. If your revenue is not completely, you know, coming from all new, look at where you are providing revenue and what that margin is. Yeah. So, so the, I mean, you committed to something that's very scary for most marketers, which is to take, <laughs> right, to take on a revenue target. Why do you think people are reluctant to do that? Well, we don't want to fail. You know, I mean, nature has it that you don't, you know, you don't want to fail. And maybe they're reluctant because they don't understand the customers enough or they don't understand what's happening uh, in the sales cycle. So I would definitely advise if you have never been a salesperson, just get to know your customer base and the key components, and as we know, everybody segments everything. So know those segmentations, know the issues surrounding them, their competitors, you know, do your whole SWOT analysis. It sounds old fashioned, but it works. And then you know, you know, who you're dealing with and you can really, you can get a better understanding of how can I, you know, attack that market. Yeah. Uh, and then you can supply your sales force with, you know, what they need as well. Yeah. So what do you think, yeah, and you've, you've seen this from both sides, but what do you think that sales gets wrong about the way they look at marketing? I think, unfortunately, sales kind of views marketing in a way that, you know, they kind of think that a little bit of tactically, right? There's, they're always thinking that we're supporting sales, not pulling customers into the organization. They forget about that part. You know, like, what are you doing to support me versus, you, you know, you're pulling and intriguing customers in, you know, by your brand, 
by your amazing, you know, mass TV advertising, whatever it is, by your digital proudness that you've you know, shown up everywhere. Now those things are measurable. Mm-hmm. So more than ever, right? I mean, we're measuring everything. But now those things are measurable and you can actually say, hey, you know, they showed up here on our website and then they did this and whatever else. And if anybody's installed as I have, um, what's now Eloquent 10, Oracle, Oracle Eloquent 10, the connectivity of what you're able to show and provide to the sales force is pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. So I, I think they forget about the polling part. Yeah. Marketing is the polling tactic. They think of you as the support tactic. But on that note, you know, one of the biggest things you can do for your sales force is give them something to talk about. You know, do the research. Like I said, know the customer so well, as well or better than your sales counterpart, that you provide them with either, you know, something as simple as, did you know that your competitors are doing this? Or did you know that, you know, we found this research for you and you, you might be interested in, so that you start to build you know, a reason for the salesperson to call the customer back or the prospect back for that matter. Give them something to talk about. That is the key, one of the key things that I think can really solidify that relationship and change it from a, I'm just supporting you to really, I'm trying to help you pull clients in. Yeah. I'm curious, how did you report your results back to the sales organization and to your peers, you know, up the chain? How often did you do it? What kind of reporting did you give back to the organization? We had weekly reporting in my most recent role, well, in all my roles, weekly reporting that basically is my people, my direct reports reporting up to me, their results, then me modifying that to what are the most, you know, know, what's newsworthy. Right. Right. (laughs) But not, you know, as we know, people don't have time to read. So what's newsworthy and some examples of things that I would send to the COO and then that would get sent to the CEO. So in every company I've been in, that's a very nice way of, you know, and that happens on the weekend, by the way. So it's, for the most part, in every job I've had, you know, Saturday, you're reading every single thing that happened, and then you're consolidating it and saying, okay, this is really important for our CEO to know. Yeah. And then you're sharing it that way. And then, of course, weekly face-to-face meetings with my peer group and our boss, always, which was good for, you know, that wasn't really where we reviewed results. Yeah. We reviewed what was wrong. <laughs> you know, yeah. We didn't really, you know, spend much time on what was working, but we didn't look at <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> that was for after work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> spent a lot of time reviewing what needed to change and, yeah. you know, or if there was a competitive issue or whatever it might be. But you're know, talking about your customers, your competitors. That's what we did. Yeah. So I see your CMO club uh, mug back there and you're the head of the New York uh, City chapter. What, what, are, what, do you, what do you hear on the minds of CMOs now? What, what are some of their concerns or what are their hot topics right now? Well, yeah. Slight modification. I just retired from that role after five years. <laughs> and That's I gave it to a lovely gentleman. Actually, we just uh, had that handoff recently. And um, so I'm a member now and I'm just enjoying it. But yeah, the New York chapter is fantastic, by the way. Smart, smart, smart people. And what's on their minds, I think, is you know, a couple of things. One is the continued push of technology into marketing. And so we talk about the relationship with the sale head of sales, but uh, or chief sales officer, or chief revenue officer, whatever. But the CIO 
is, is critically important. And so I think that's an area that is still a little cloudy to some extent. For instance, sometimes if you're making, obviously you own the website, marketers own the website, they own the content, but they don't always own all the resources that work on the web because those resources are working on other products or they're working on other things for the company. Right. So I think, you know, having that, trying to figure out a working relationship with the CIO is one of the things that marketers are still struggling with. Sales is is critically important. But if you don't have the underpinnings, I mean, in most of my roles, I spent the first six months fixing stuff, you know, getting stuff set up so that you can be successful. You get your foundation in place so that you can go perform at the level you know you need to. And if you don't have a good partner, boy, you're in trouble. You are in trouble. And if you have to fight for resources and whatever else and get in the queue. The other thing is, as we know, I would love to be able to quote what study this came from, but marketers are spending a ton of technology money now. They're responsible for the budget. So now it's not just about talk and getting stuff done. It's about it's your money. <laughs> so now right. it's personal and you need that support. So it, it, that's, a, that's a concern, I would say. Yeah. So the MarTech stack keeps, keeps growing. It's getting bigger and bigger. What was your approach to evaluating technology? Well, I am a collaborator, and uh, most of the time, that's good. <laughs> I, it, it can work both ways, but I always invited, and I've been in technology my whole career, so I would invite in you know, my peer group, the CIO, their team, to learn about what was available for us to accomplish what we needed to do, evaluate it, choose it. You know, th- their vote was, was equally as important, and then ultimately implement it. Hmm. And, you know, if you get that kind of buy-in up front, then I think I strongly recommend that you do, Yeah. you know, on the QT, even if you don't need it, right? Maybe you already know what the right answer is. I think it's important to collaborate and get everybody engaged and enlisted. And we had fun with it, you know, it was, we had fun with it. And the team loved like understanding, oh, that's what happens after we, you know, create this thing on your website or whatever, or that's what's going to happen with leads once we implement this. This is, you know, like they actually liked knowing the technologists and the and the design people actually liked knowing what happened ultimately. So I think that's a good thing, you know, partner early. Yeah. And, and did you do small pilots first or did you do a test that, in particular area and then roll that out across? What was your kind of your process in which you are evaluating and then scaling it through the organization? Actually, you can do that by region, by customer set segment, you know, however you want to do that, depending on what you're implementing. But if you're implementing something that impacts sales, uh, well, everything impacts sales. But if you're implementing, you know, <laughs> impacts the sales force more specifically. You know, I'll tell you it does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You want to be careful, you know, that you do do a pilot or test. And yeah, I learned a long time ago in my very first marketing job, test, test, and, you know, then roll things out. You know, you really need to test. And the best thing is if you test and fail, it's a minor blip on the screen. But if you roll something out, you know, too quickly, it can be detrimental to your career. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So back to, to CMOs, new CMOs coming into the role right now, uh, what advice would you give them? I mean, you've seen 
up and down and organizations being reworked and you've seen the entry of, of new technology and you've seen the influence of sales, product-driven organizations. So if you had to give you know, a new CMO like three things to think about as they come into the job, what would that be? First, listen. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard to listen. But listen to the organization. Gather the data that you need. Pretend you're from McKinsey or something. You know, pretend you're a consultant and listen and gather the data that you need and then build your strategy and then build your plan. Two different things for execution because plan has a time, you know, really time bound and everything, measurement, you know, all the, the things that you would expect. And then uh, mobilize, mobilize your team against that. And in the last, whatever I would say, no, last two roles, I've had to present at the CEO level, you know, 100 day plan, what's happening in the first 100 days, and then you go do it, (laughs) make it happen. But it's very important to appreciate, especially if you're coming into a, taking on a role that already existed. If it's a brand new role, maybe it's slightly different things matter. But if you're taking on another role, you uh, a role that existed, you really need to listen to what the issues are. Um, because you can't waste any time fixing something that doesn't really need to be fixed. It's just maybe based on personal bias from prior leaders, you know, so you really need to quickly separate, you know, by listening, what is really, we got to go do this now, you know, like these people have no idea what's happening with their customer base after they buy something, you know, go fix that versus what's sort of more just angst and, uh, people that maybe are not as signed up for transformation or change. So how do you sort through that? I mean, th- there's a lot of people that will tell you they, they need your time or attention or you need to fix something for them. How do you sort through that and really find the key priorities? Well, let's be clear. The CMO is about next person who knows everything that's going on in the company as an, and is involved, involved in it, if you are truly doing that job. So you are... You're at the table because something that you're doing, you know, is somehow you're involved in it mm-hmm. or your team is involved in it. So it's not hard to get access, you know, to those discussions. I think what's hard is, to your point, prioritizing it or deciphering it and saying, okay, what does that mean? And for that, you need to really call on your team, the people that have been there, you know, your leaders and say, you know, how valid is this and get you know, multiple sides of the story. A lot of that will pare down to products and offers. A lot of those discussions end up being about products and offers. And the truth of the matter is, if you know the customer base well enough, you know, this goes kind of full circle, you'll be able to have a really good discussion about what's most important to that base. Yeah. You you can't have that conversation with the product people or the... I've also found it's important in the role to, if you don't have, I mean, certainly you would have product marketing, most of these roles, uh, CMO roles, but sometimes it's not an owner of the offer itself, that that will still sit outside. That becomes a huge challenge. And so I would encourage anyone taking on a CMO role to make sure that you own the offer that's being presented to the clients, because nobody's going to know, nobody should know it better than the marketing organization. And they should, you know, what those various clients want. Yeah. Um, So that's a little bit of challenge. Did I answer that? Yeah, definitely. 
I mean, it's very difficult, I imagine, for people coming in new into organizations to really filter through that. So figuring out who you can trust on your team and and what's really going on inside the organization and finding those two trusted advisors inside is critical, I imagine. It is. I think you know, building those relationships is great. It does take time, but also you can kind of tell like early on, um, you know, what, you know, and I don't know how to say this without sounding like, you know, you're looking at your organization, to, you know, and picking out your advisors or something, but you kind of can tell pretty, pretty early on who is invested in the future of the company once it wants to be successful has a less biased approach. You know, you can pretty much tell that in the first, I'd say six weeks. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but I really do feel that way. And especially if you're kind of a people person anyway, which a lot of marketers are. So you kind of get it really quickly. I'm not saying to turn off other signals, you know, but don't get bogged down with noise. Yeah. My good friend uh, told me a long time ago, be careful of signals versus noise. You know, listen for the signal. Right. Good advice. <laughs> so, so you've been a marketer, but you've also been a buyer of, of technologies and services. And so someone, what advice would you give to someone who's trying to sell to a CMO? What, what is it that you're looking for in terms of feeling like you're making a good purchase decision? What do they need to do to, to get you to that, that, you know, that place? Um, so that's a very good question because early on, as you move up the marketing and advertising continuum and you become more important and have a bigger budget, <laughs> a lot of people trying to sell you, you know, right. and I have, I actually was on a advertising week panel years ago and someone said, how do we get your attention? And I said, well, I'll tell you, I, someone got my attention. They sent me a boot, one boot, like a beautiful woman's boot and said, if you want the other boot, you know, you need to see a demo of our product or whatever. And I said, you know, that's, that's work. That works. Okay. But you know, just, why don't you just call me? You know, that might work too. Yeah. Point, you know, how do you kind of weed through? I mean, people are constantly trying to sell you technology or, you know, get you to advertise on their platforms or whatever it is. And it is really hard, which is why many organizations have so many agencies, partners, providers of technology. It's a, plethora of choices um, and they've chosen them all basically. Right. Yeah. Have been able to do that. I think the best thing is really to get almost the team around it, kind of have an evaluation team and you evaluate vendors. And I don't want to sound like hierarchical, uh, but it's good to have your team kind of vet things before you see it if possible. But at the same time, keep an ear to the ground because they may not know all of the things you know about the strategy of the company going yeah. and so sometimes they'll knock out a technology or a vendor or you know an agency or something like that but they don't know for whatever reason you know the full-on strategy of the company it may be too confidential so you have to kind of keep your ear to the ground and then meet with those people and, and vet them accordingly and the tech part of it it is hard because there's a lot of choices now you know and that happens over the last whatever 15 years it's just grown tremendously and some good some bad you know and obviously i'm fortunate to have the cmo club we have a vendor rating piece of our um our website and our online tools and you can go in and basically say have anybody <laughs> you know use this and 
and out of you know 800 members somebody has some kind of knowledge so yeah that's great I'll keep great resource. <laughs> so my my last question is you in your career have presented to boards in the past and now that you're on the other side of the table so to speak and you're on the board what maybe misconceptions or perceptions did you have of the board now that you're sitting on the other side ah I don't know if I should say this or not. <laughs> <laughs> what surprised you, you know, now that you're sitting on that side? I mean, it's, uh, it's intimidating going in front of a board at any at point, but now that you're on the other side and you're evaluating things. It, it is. And I would say it's not as organized as you think. I mean, everybody's trying really hard to grow the business. In my particular case, there are some really, really smart people, really smart people, doctors, you know, ex-Oracle people that yeah. have long stay that were there in the first 100 customers kind of thing. There are some big people sitting around that table, but it's still tough. I mean, if it was easy, every company would be wildly successful. So yeah, I think that's the thing that, you know, and the other thing is don't waste anyone's time if you're presenting to a board and really understand what they're looking for, because sometimes it's hidden, you know, a little bit, Hmm. you know, it's not, it's not always made blatantly clear. And that's not because they're trying to do that. It's just because maybe they haven't, they haven't articulated it well themselves, you know? So I think that that's, uh, you know, be clear, attack the problem at hand and just be, you know, buttoned up as you can, if you're, presenting to a board. Yeah. They will, a lot of times, you know, you'll be in these meetings and people will comment on things and you'll wonder the value of it. You need to listen, but not everything is of equal weight. Maybe that. Good. So that leads to another question I have to ask then is how do you get consensus on a board? Uh, Well, you know, there is voting. (laughs) And there's a lot of collaboration and a lot of pre-discussion. Yeah. In the case of my current situation, my job I was in prior was a little bit different, but in my current situation, you know, there's a lot of pre-gathering consensus, you know, before you actually decide on something. Yeah. Truthfully, that's the way it is in any, you know, decision. You don't walk into a meeting and surprise your peer group (laughs) with something that you want to change. Don't do it ever, ever. Like, I can't think of any reason you know, and maybe somebody else will disagree with me. I'm sure there will be, but I can't think of any reason to surprise your peer group in front of your boss with anything. So collaboration and kind of, for lack of a better term, work the crowd, make sure everybody knows what you intend to have happen, get some head nodding before you walk in. That all holds true in almost any leadership position, I think. Yeah. I once had a client tell me nothing ever happens in a meeting. It's always before and after. <laughs> there, that's true and we i've had experiences where there's like you know what we call it pocket veto power you know yeah. everybody decides something in the meeting and then you walk out and two people walk down the hall and the next thing you know we're not doing that anymore so it's that happens too right and that's life you live with it you know you live and learn the best thing that you can do is be connected to those people so you're not surprised yeah you know, if you're the one that's in the meeting that's surprised, something's wrong. Yeah. If you're sitting around the table and you didn't know what was going to be presented, there's something wrong. 
at that level. Yeah, agree. Well, thank you so much for your time. We, we can talk all day. I know. <laughs> Such fun. great insights and great experience. And I, I really value, you know, the time you've spent with us today and the insight that you've shared. Thank and, uh, you know, maybe we'll schedule another time to go even deeper into different areas that we haven't explored today. That sounds great. I would love it. Thank you, Stephanie.